0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, December the 7th, and you're very welcome to the
1: Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today we are returning again to the North and South Research Project published by the Irish Times in association with Aarons, analysing and researching Ireland North and South. Since last we spoke, we have published more results from our poll of citizens North and South of the border on questions relating to a possible referendum on Irish unity. The results seem to me at least intriguing and they beg a number of further questions about the possible direction of politics in the island in the years ahead. To discuss some of this, I'm joined by our Northern editor, Freya Clements And by Professor John Garry of Queen's University, who has led the project alongside Professor Brendan O'Leary, who you heard on our last podcast. But first, political editor Pat Leahy is also here. And Pat, it's a very busy day today for the nitty gritty of domestic politics. Uh,
0: yes, Hugh. Yeah. So Cabinet is uh, meeting today, normally Tuesday, but um, it was delayed to today because the Taoiseach was in Tirana yesterday, which is uh, not his final outing as a Taoiseach. He'll be going to the European Summit. That's happening next week in the days before the big date, which is on the 17th of December, Saturday week, when the big changeover happens in government. So what you're seeing... Uh, in and around government at the moment is this mad scramble to get things finished. It's often like this at the end of the year where you have very lengthy cabinet agendas, ministers trying to clear their desks before they go away for the Christmas holidays. But it's especially so now because, after all, ministers don't know, with a couple of individual exceptions, they don't know what uh, if they're going to return to their departments after the changeover in Cabinet, and that's because when the Taoiseach resigns, as Mihol Martin will do on the morning of the 17th of December, all ministers are deemed to have resigned as well. And then we will see later that day, we'll see a reshuffle and uh, Leo Varadkar, currently Tonsha, will take over as Taoiseach. He'll be voted in by the Dáil and he will then have to appoint his own ministers. So what you're seeing at the moment is a scramble to clear desks and also by ministers to show that they are getting their jobs done and they're ticking all those items on, the, uh, on their agendas uh, in the hope that this will persuade the leaders of their parties to keep them in situ. So there's a couple of very big things that have to be done before or that, that the government intends should be done before the switch over. They include the uh, updated Climate Action Plan, which I understand is the subject of some considerable wrangling behind the scenes. That's not on today's Cabinet agenda, but it is the intention to get it done by the last Cabinet meeting of this particular uh, government next week. A couple of other things as well that ministers hope will be concluded by the time the government turns around, most notable... Of them, a big reform of the planning laws that is being conducted principally by the Attorney General Paul Gallagher, who is due to step down uh, and he won't be available for reappointment by Leo Vraker when he becomes. Taoiseach. So both those things expected next week. Today, also busy agenda on Cabinet. I'll mention just one thing, Hugh, which is the Cabinet will approve the offer of a new consultant's contract. These talks have been going on for years and years uh, between the Department of Health and the, the doctors' representatives on the other side of the table. And the reason that this is important is that If it is agreed by the doctors' organisations, the the, the Irish Hospital Consultants Association and the the IMO, it will unlock a lot of new consultant appointments in the health service. And that, in turn, is kind of essential for the Sláinte Care programme of reform in the health service. There's currently hundreds and hundreds of unfilled uh, consultant posts in the health service. And if they're going to start getting to grips with all those slaughter care reforms, uh, getting to grips with waiting lists, new services rolled out across the system, and so forth, then they need more consultants. This contract should unlock that if it's agreed It won't come cheap. Salaries of up to 250,000 for the consultants, but that's just a basic salary. There'll also be allowances, Um, and premium payments on top of that which along with the public sector pension contribution will bring the total remuneration of consultants in many cases to above 300,000 so it doesn't come cheap but it will be important and uh, Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly very anxious to get it done. And interestingly, in a circuitous kind of way, that very immediate, very domestic uh,
1: issue feeds back into some of the things we were discussing about the North-South project at the weekend with Brendan O'Leary, because the, the initial results of the polls and the focus group information we published at the weekend, which was about people's willingness to uh, participate in a referendum, um, when they thought it should happen, and how they would vote in a referendum. One of the issues, particularly for voters north of the border, was concerns and questions about the Health Service and I suppose, amalgamating the HSC with the National Health Service. But we've published a lot more information since then, and I was hoping to focus in on a couple of a couple of interesting points. John Gary, if I, if I can go to you first. Perhaps first of all, we could start with a principle which you wrote about in the paper um, a couple of days ago, which is the idea of loser's consent. What is loser's consent and why is it so important?
2: Well, loser's consent is an important concept when we're thinking about democracy. And in fact, it's an important concept for a lot of aspects of life. If you find yourself playing a football match, and it's a hard-fought competitive match, and you end up on the losing side, you'll be a bit disappointed, but you typically kind of accept the result of the match. You don't think the whole refereeing was terribly corrupt. You accept it, and, and you move on. And democracy is a little bit like that as well. For a, for a a smoothly functioning democracy. We want people after a referendum or after an election, if they're on the losing side, to say, "Well, okay, uh, we gave it a best shot, and we accept the result. The process was good, and it was legitimate, and we we accept it." Now, in our surveys, north and south, we examined the extent to which respondents would find um, certain results of the referendums, whether it's United Ireland or staying in the UK, acceptable or not acceptable. And we were particularly interested in identifying the proportion of people who would find certain results, quote, almost impossible to accept. And we find that when we ask when we ask people to imagine that there's referendums north and south and the result is for Northern Ireland to remain in the United Kingdom. There's a very high level of acceptability of that. Very, very few people say, oh, I, I find that almost impossible to accept. However, when we ask people in Northern Ireland, people from a Protestant background, we get um, quite a lot of people who would say, I would find a United Ireland if that's what resulted from the referendums, almost impossible to accept. A third of people from a Protestant background say this. And when we investigate the data a little bit more closely, we find that males and working class Protestants are are particularly likely to say, I would find Irish unity almost impossible to accept. And unsurprisingly, people who vote for the DUP and the TUV. Now, of course, um, this this brings into life uh, a pretty obvious question, which is, well, What does this survey wording actually mean? If somebody says, well, I would find Irish unity almost impossible to accept, what does that actually really mean? And it is a little bit ambiguous. It it probably doesn't suggest that people would immediately emigrate or that there would be an insurrection of sorts, but it does indicate a very strong level of hostility to the result, uh, to that possible result. And that's worth knowing because that then springs into life a couple of other questions, which is, A, well, precisely what would be likely to happen if you have an awful lot of people who say this result is almost impossible to accept. And I think more interestingly, the way I would kind of address the question is to say, well, now that we know this, how does that affect the way we talk about and debate the possibility of the shape of a possible united Ireland? And it lays down the challenge to people who are advocating referendums and advocating a United Ireland to elaborate their version of a United Ireland, which might actually reduce the proportion of people from a Protestant background who would find a United Ireland impossible to accept. So it lays down a challenge, I think, to advocates.
1: Yeah, I must say, I find personally I find the wording very useful in its ambiguity because it captures nuance, which is not something always that polls do. And I suppose, really, Freya, I mean, the fact is that it captures the potential maximum number of people who who might refuse cooperation, might actively resist, or indeed might might leave a united Ireland. It's sort of the maximum number of those people. What do you think when you look at that number? Does that reflect a part of the Northern Irish Society that you that you report on from day to day?
3: Yeah, and interestingly, I mean, I, I've been trying to interrogate that phrase, that almost impossible to accept and just to figure out what that actually might mean in practice. And I think John's right. I mean, what it does reflect is that there is a very strong opposition amongst a section of the Protestant Community who I would imagine are predominantly that sort of DUP, TUV voter who would have a real difficulty contemplating a united Ireland and what their place might be within that united Ireland. And that then throws up a challenge to the people who would advocate for Irish unity. Well, okay, if this is what we're talking about, how do we square this circle whereby we bring people who would feel no no affinity with this state, it it would appear, no desire to be part of it. How do you bring them within that if that is indeed your aim? And I suppose two linked points that I, I would make on this. I mean, in terms of examining that question of what almost impossible to accept might look like, you know, are we talking about, does that mean people would move? Are we talking about lawful protests, civic unrest, or are we talking ultimately about violence? And I spoke to sort of various security sources about this during the week to try and and, and get a, a gauge and get a handle on, you know, what what actually do we think we are talking about? Um, I mean, there's absolutely no question that we're talking about something like a return to the type of violence that we might have seen during the Troubles. I mean. conditions for that are just not there for many, many reasons that we don't have time to to go into. But this is something that is often talked about when people talk about the United Ireland, they talk about the prospect of of loyalist violence, that there will be violence on the streets, there will be opposition. And I mean, we saw 10 years ago with the the flags protests in Northern Ireland, you know, it is possible to put a number of people on the streets and to have sort of a substantial level of of unrest. And the the sense around all of this, and this is maybe isn't a very helpful answer, or maybe it is, but is it, it it's just impossible to tell because we're talking about a hypothetical situation and we're talking about a hypothetical situation in the future. You know, nobody, you know, not even the people who, who advocate most fervently for United Ireland are saying that there is going to be one tomorrow. Um, you know, Sinn Féin talk about a, a referendum within 10 years, a border poll within 10 years. You know, we're talking about a longer term project and we just don't know what the conditions will be when we get to that point. Now, it's reasonable to assume that there may well be a small rump within loyalism, within loyalist paramilitaries who might seek to oppose this. I mean, we, we've seen seen this even this year in terms of, you know, the, the hoax bomb attack against Simon Coveney, for example. You know, we see it on the other side of things. You know, there is still that small rump of dissident Republicans um, who are opposed to take their um, rationale all the way back to the to the proclamation, back to 1916. So, I mean, we, we've always seen that in the history of this island. But to attempt to track back from that and say, you know, there would be some kind of large scale um, violence or large scale process is very difficult and also seems unlikely. And again, it, it's back to that point about we just don't know what this might look like. And, and one of the things I would just throw in there is, I mean, the comments by... Leo Varadkar, who's going to be Taoiseach very soon, at the Ireland's Future event in Dublin in in October. You know when when he talked about what this potential. United Ireland might look like. He actually described something that that would look pretty similar. You know, constitutionally there would be change, but he talked about there still being a devolved parliament, instalment, still being all the symbols, still having the police service. You know, so again, we're, you know, we're talking about something that that's down the line and something that we just don't know what it might look like, and that that's really where the conversation is at the minute. And to come on, you're wondering where I'm going with this, but to come on to the the the, the, the second point that I, I promised you, and it, it, it's really what. John said about, well, the challenge then is how do you engage with that unionist opinion? You know, how do you engage with people from, from that Protestant background who say it would be almost impossible to, to accept this constitutional change? And the, the, the things there that really strike a chord with people are polling on things like willingness to change the anthem, willingness to change the flag, willingness even to look at these. And I, I, I spoke previously to a group of um, former security um, forces personnel uh, in in Oma uh, around about a year ago, and we did we did polling on attitudes then towards things like changing the anthem, changing changing the flag, that this sort of thing, and it was absolutely fascinating the, these were all men from a, a protestant background who would who would vote unionist who would have absolutely no desire to be um part part of a, a united Ireland but who were interestingly all really keen to kind of have their say about this and for them the fact that significant numbers of people in the republic could say that they wouldn't even be prepared to contemplate things like a change the flag or change the anthem showed to them that there was just this an unwillingness in the in in the Republic in the South for genuine compromise or accommodation. The fact that many people hadn't thought about this things that meant a huge amount to them to them demonstrated the level of disinterest, lack of engagement, and the extent to which that they they felt that they would not be accommodated in a, in a United Ireland. So that I think is something that would have to be looked at if if we are looking to change that number, um, change that figure.
1: Yeah, I think that's all very true, and there are some numbers which we're going to come to in in a little while, Pat, which is about exactly what Frey is talking about: their attitudes in the Republic to towards compromises that might need to be made in a in a unified state. But just to come back to the user's consent point for a moment, uh, if you don't mind, it strikes me looking at it is is that I mean, obviously, one of the the huge difficulties that Northern Ireland as a political entity uh, faced over the course of its existence has been for the majority of its history it didn't have it didn't have the consent of the large minority of nationalists and, uh, and Catholics and that was one of the dynamics of politics in Northern Ireland from the very start but there is a kind of a question of where users' consent starts and finishes doesn't it? I mean we're marking the centenary of the, the civil war right now uh, the, uh, the state that came into existence a hundred years ago was legitimately mandated by the parliament of the time and the political parties in a general election that supported it received a majority. uh, That didn't persuade those opposed to the treaty not to take up arms against it. More recently, in the last couple of years, there is an absence of user's consent in some parts of the United States. Is there a point, I suppose, at which whether because the minority which is objecting or refusing to accept the result is so small or because its argument is so unreasonable that you just have to move forward anyway?
0: Yeah, perhaps so. I mean, I suppose, you know, in relation to one of the comparisons that you draw there is the foundation of this state. And while there wasn't the loser's consent for those votes in the doll on the Anglo-Irish treaty or the result of the uh, the subsequent election, that loser's consent arrived reasonably shortly afterwards. I suppose the formation of Fianna Fáil and the entry of Fianna Fall into uh, the doll of the uh, of the free State uh, amounted in in you know a couple of years later amounted to a sort of losers' consent, which then crossed the aisle as it were in the doll in the nineteen thirty two general election when power was peacefully handed over by the Caminaguel government to 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 So you know, I suppose that was a position where there was at the outset no losers' consent, but which. Uh, but which grew fairly quickly uh, thereafter. I I, I mean, it seems to me, going back to our research and the lessons that we can draw from it uh, for the purposes of of this discussion, there may be something in what you say that when the group uh, or any group that withholds losers' consent is so small, and numerically insignificant that you have to move on, perhaps without them, and hope that they will accommodate themselves to uh, you know to the new political reality uh, over time. That's one thing. But what the poll tells us really is, is is that the group for whom there is certainly a question of withholding losers' uh, consent is much bigger than a than a tiny rump. It's a Twenty percent of the, or almost twenty percent of the northern population, it's almost a third of all voters from a Protestant, uh, a Protestant background. And while the great majority of people north and south are Democrats and would accept the verdicts of democratic referendums, bear in mind that was also the case uh, during the entire period of uh, of the Troubles, when you know it was a relatively small group without um uh you know with with without anything more than the support of a, a of a small rump of militant republican supporters but they still managed to plunge northern ireland into 30 years of violence which was obviously met on the other side by the uh, by the forces of the state so it seems to me this does present the proponents of, uh, of a united Ireland with a significant issue as, to, you know, a, a about how to make the new state uh, a, a success. Um, and, and I suppose going back to what Freya says, you know, the, the, the threat of violence, which, you know, you don't want to overstate Certainly, uh, at this point, but at the same time, you can't ignore it either. The North is a place with a history, a very recent history of extreme uh, political and long-lasting uh, political violence. Um, so you can't brush it under the carpet uh, either. And but it seems to work. Me, it works on 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 two levels. There's the actual prospect of violence in the in the uh, event of a successful uh, unity referendum, but there's also the fear of violence which would be a dynamic in that referendum campaign. And we know this would be a factor both north and uh, and south because our research in the Republic shows us that the number one concern amongst uh, voters in the Republic uh, uh, in advance of of a referendum would be whether a united Ireland would be peaceful or not. Beyond the economy, beyond public services, beyond anything else, peace is the number one concern uh, in, uh, in the South. And we also know that in, in the South, that the prospect of significant loyalist violence in advance of the referendum would make almost half of all voters in the South less likely to vote for a united Ireland. So I think the violence question, which, you know, to state again, you know, we shouldn't overstate, but nor should we dismiss it, uh, either works on those two levels. One, a challenge for any new unified state, but also, um, uh, also as a dynamic within any referendum campaigns. John, there's a couple of dynamics there
1: which I'd like you to comment on if you wouldn't mind. One is the fact that, obviously, the, the people we're talking about here, the people who find it almost impossible to accept a, a new political dispensation, they, they're they not a standalone group. They form part of a continuum of Protestant unionist opinions, some of which doesn't feel that way. And it seems to me that from the perspective of those arguing for a united Ireland, should that come to pass, and we should remind our listeners, by the way, that it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon, according to the uh, the numbers in the poll that we published at the, at the weekend, it's those more persuadable unionists, I suppose you could... You describe them rather than anything else, with whom it will be necessary to engage because it's probably going to be quite difficult to engage with the almost uh, impossible to accept crowd. And the other thing is the underlying um, dynamic of the Troubles, which um, certainly people as old as me definitely still remember, which is that that continuum kind of um, contributed to the, the political stagnation alongside the violence, in that each side saw the other as having an armed force wing, which it was happy to see deployed at certain times in the service of its own argument—be that the unionist or nationalist argument—whether or not that perception was right, and I think it was sometimes, and it wasn't at other cases, it certainly formed part of the political discourse, and it's something to fear. It's not that long ago that it might reemerge again.
2: Yeah, I think there's a big challenge in what you say about uh, advocates of Irish unity in, engaging with those who who don't want it, and. Uh, whether you engage with people who would find it almost impossible to accept or are a bit more relaxed, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's kind of a challenge at three levels, I think. Um, you can engage with someone by offering them a picture of what you're suggesting. And oftentimes when people north or south talk about a United Ireland, it, it's just a couple of words. <laughs> there's nothing underneath the bonnet. Nobody really knows what it is. Um, so people who are advocating United Ireland could flesh out what it means um, in a way that would engage those who, who don't want it. And first of all, in relation to symbols of various kinds, uh, such as the flag, the anthem, um, political um, possibilities to unionists in government and unionist veto and so on. There's a challenge there for advocates of United Ireland to describe the kind of unity that they want, that would engage those who were perhaps open-minded and want to do it. The second area is is kind of policy-related on economics and and health that we've mentioned. The bigger picture, and I don't want to. I don't know if Pat wants to me to 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 give away anything here because it's coming up um, at the weekend. Careful now, careful now. You, you, can, you can give them you can give them a tease, but nothing more. <laughs> Well, if you were to um, engage with the Irish Times Aaron's results on Saturday, (laughs) what you'd find is that one of the the really important things is the big picture um, constitutional framework of a united Ireland. That has a really significant effect on the likelihood of people from a Protestant background seeing a united Ireland as almost impossible to accept or not. In other words, an advocate of a united Ireland could say, let's have a kind of a a traditional 32-county United Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland disappears and everything's run out of Dublin. Or you could could have a type of United Ireland that Freya mentioned earlier that Leo Varadkar essentially uh, alluded to, which is one which isn't an awful lot different from what we have at the minute. Sure, it's a United Ireland but Northern Ireland would continue to exist as a devolved entity within that United Ireland. And which one of those two you choose has a very big impact on whether or not people from a Protestant background see it as almost impossible to accept or not. And therein lies possibly the biggest challenge for people who are advocating referendums and are advocating United Ireland to spell out Which big picture constitutional framework they're adopting, in addition to the kind of medium level stuff on economic policy, health policy and flags, anthems and and all the rest of it.
1: And that tees up very nicely the second part of our conversation, which we're going to come to in a moment. First of all, I just want to remind you that we will be running our regular Ask Me Anything podcast coming up to Christmas. So if you do have any questions or points, preferably questions that you'd like to put to our politics team, email them in to politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. And we always welcome audio versions because we do like to hear your voices because you're probably sick of hearing ours by now. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back to the Inside Politics podcast. Still with me, Freya McClements, John Gary, and uh, Pat Leahy. Freya, just before the break, John was talking about this sort of, I suppose, you know, proper intellectual deep engagement with some of the constitutional issues that might arise in the United Ireland, and uh, and there's an implicit suggestion there. I'm not sure if John was making it, but I'm going to make it anyway. Is that an awful lot of people, the majority of people in the in in the South haven't haven't done that yet? I was talking before we started recording to our our producer Declan, who was out vox popping uh, earlier on the streets of Dublin, and he remarked uh, on the basis of that. And I think this is absolutely right that the vast majority of people haven't really thought about this seriously at all. Um, Looking from north of the border at the south, how seriously do you think people in the Republic are engaging with this issue up until now?
3: I think nowhere near the extent to which people in the North have been engaging with it, and I mean the, you know the, there are obvious reasons for that you know i mean it it would be a commonly expressed view, i suppose uh, up here would be that that people in the south um you know don't really care, aren't interested, don't want to know you know depending on your sort of maybe level of involvement or family ties or you know where you might have traveled um you know people might have a bit of an interest, might know something about it, and that sort of veers from that to that place up there sure sure they're all a bit mad up there anyway we don't don't really want anything to do with that you know so i think i mean absolutely there is a difference in the way that this is is seen kind of north and south of the border and i think what also colours that is is the fact that there's an an assumption if you like not just an assumption i mean this is backed up by polling but that in the circumstances we have a border poll there would be a majority in the south for for a referendum anyway and 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 to a certain extent that there's a sense that you know we can talk about these things about people who say in the south that they might be you know, less inclined to vote yes if the flag was going to be changed. You know, Equally there's the sense that, will you put an Irish man or, or woman in a, in a polling booth and ask them to vote yes or no in a United Ireland, they're going to find it very hard to live with themselves if they don't vote yes. Um, and that's, you know, leave aside your discussions about economy and health or the nature of the state, that that, that is simply the way it is. So therefore the place where, where the debate is happening is in the North, because obviously this is where uh, it is more contentious, this is where it's going to affect everybody in, in Northern Ireland on, on on a daily basis. But that, that obviously um, obscures or overlooks the reality that actually what we're talking about here is we're talking about taking two entities, two separate constitutional entities at the minute. And and, and how, how do we do this? It's back to what John was saying about what does this look like? You know, how, how do you blend these Together. Are you talking about blending them together? Are you talking about the very, you know, the the, the classic, if you like, model where you have 26 counties and you stick on six? Um, or are you talking about, you know, a, a federal state? Are you talking about something kind of kind of completely new? So there needs to be more, the, the discussion, the debate and the involvement on this needs to come from south of the border as well. But one of the, the things that is is always said in, in the north in regard to this debate And it's what we were touching on just there before the break is about the extent to which the planning isn't there, about how we need to plan, but how we need to know um, what this will look like. And you'll hear people, uh, particularly those people in the don't know, Category who are really really interesting, and they will say things like, "Well, we just don't, we, you know, we don't know what we what we'd be voting for. You know, we can't have this this like Brexit where people don't know what they were voting for. You know, we need to know, we need to know what this would mean. We need to know what this would mean for the economy. We need to know what the health service would look like." And one of the things I think is really interesting is about the health service, and a lot of people will talk about the NHS in in, in the North as being one of the reasons that they don't want a united ireland but yet yeah, the health service in in the north is completely falling over you know um i mean we we had the v- very sad news yesterday about the, the the death of a little girl with sort of a severe form of illness because of this strep a bacterial infection and, and there were, there was a the public health agency had a press conference and there was a lot of interviews on the radio and all the questions from from the journalists when the advice was being given if you're not sure contact your gp all the questions from journalists were about well, what if you can't get through to your GP? People can't can't get a GP's appointment. People can't talk to GPs. So the health service is under massive pressure. There are nurses' strikes. Waiting lists are as long as your arm and and getting longer. But yet there is this attachment to to the NHS. And and one of the things, and again, what John was talking about, you know, how how you engage with sort of different types of of voters. One of the things I think would be really interesting would be if that question of the health service was tackled particularly and say, okay, well here's an opportunity to do something new what would this look like how do we get a health service that works both north and south and it would be really interesting to see how opinions would change if that kind of if that kind of research was out there
1: so our research is very interesting on this, pattern, and, and you've been commenting on it, and the, the very strong resistance to, you know, symbolic issues like changing the flag and changing the anthem, and then, as John says, probably the even more important ones of the constitutional shape of, of any future settlement. And when I look at those numbers, I, I, I suppose my, my instinct is that I don't think it's it's necessarily, or at least the majority of what's driving that is not a sort of irredentist Republican, you know, if we win, we win and we win everything and we're going to call all the shots. It is more of a, of a lack of engagement. And one of the things that's, that's very striking about all this is that no political party in Ireland right now, and I include Sinn Féin, which is clearly both the largest party and the one most committed to Irish unity as soon as possible, has laid out a full picture of what, in its view, a united Ireland would look like. Is that a failure of politics, or is that a wily political strategy?
0: Well, uh, I'd look at it another way, Hugh. I think there's kind of a responsibility now on the advocates of Irish unity. Um, And, of course, that includes all parties, not just Sinn Féin. But Sinn Féin is the one which is clearly most impatient for Irish unity, though... It remains to be seen, I suppose, whether the sort of reality check that this um, project has delivered has an impact on the way Sinn Féin addresses uh, the situation. I mean, Mary Lou Macdonald is fond of saying, you know, that she sees United Ireland by the end of the decade as an inevitability. I think the phrase she uses is, of that there is no doubt, but a very significant doubt about it. Uh, actually and i I wonder if Sinn Fein and other uh groups, including civic groups, which are devoted to a uh, United Ireland, will now move forward towards kind of proposals that can be debated uh are not um by by people north and south. And that goes obviously beyond just the flags and anthems. I mean, when people are asked, when people in Sinn Féin are asked about this, they tend to say, well, yes, we need to have a conversation uh, uh, about flags and anthems and constitutional uh, arrangements to which one might ask, well, yes, but what would you say for your part uh, in that conversation? What model do you propose? What is your view? What is your red lines? I mean, we saw the joining the Commonwealth, the flags and anthems appeared, and this was amongst undecided voters in our focus groups in the South, to be almost red lines. So, uh, you know, is it are the proponents of a united Ireland going to engage not just with, you know, unionists or sceptics about a united Ireland, but also with supporters of a united Ireland in order to persuade them that, you know, that everybody has to, if it is going to work, everybody has to arrive at a model to which they can, uh, with which uh, they can, they can live with. So uh, I think you know Sinn Féin constantly calls for a citizens' assembly uh, on the topic, but actually it doesn't need a citizens' assembly to to set out what its views are, are would would. Would be uh, on all of these issues, so I think that'll be one of the interesting things to watch in the future: the extent to which people are prepared to engage with the reality of the situation as outlined by uh, by 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 this poll. And in fact, you know, while the reality, as I say, is outlined is outlined by this poll, is stark in some respects. It's not out of kilter in its you know in its top line findings with every other piece of published research, which shows that there is no majority in the north for uh, for a united ireland and also other research in the sh- in the south which shows uh, you know that there are at the very least ambiguous feelings about uh, a united ireland once you begin to ask about what the south might have to give up what it might have to pay what it might have to contribute in terms of financial political and Constitutional, and symbolic um, uh, concessions uh, in 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 order to make United Ireland uh, workable. So you know, I think if there is to be a debate on it, it seems to me that it's an issue that is not going to go away from Irish politics. It's on the agenda of Irish politics, North and South, now in a way that it wasn't uh, before over the last uh, over the last number of decades. It's on the agenda now, but. I think people would be better served by dealing with the reality as it is uh, on the ground and the reality of people's views rather than what they would like those views to be. John, I find myself distinguishing, and tell me I'm wrong, I may well be wrong,
1: between on the one hand, what you might call these symbolic um, uh, elements of national identity, emotional attachments to flags and songs and symbols, um, and on the other hand, the real nitty-gritty of how a government is shaped And who makes the decisions and who has what input? Am I wrong to? They they often tend to get lumped into the same basket of compromises that need to be made. Am I wrong to distinguish between those two things?
2: Well, if you're distinguishing things like flags and anthems on the the one side, the symbolic stuff, and then, um, you know, how how do you actually, for example, um, operationalize a unionist component of a government and what powers do you give them, then they are. They are, I guess, two um, different things. I think. I think people. It's easy for people to think of a, of flags and anthems. They're very familiar with them, and they can say, "No, I want to hang on to my flag," or "Oh, the anthem is great." I think people in the south are less familiar with um, changing the political system to accommodate uh, unionists. So, if you were to essentially to say to people, you know, one way to engage unionists is to essentially adopt something similar to the power sharing executive that's currently operating in Northern Ireland and have that in operation in Dublin over the island as a whole, in a united Ireland, essentially um, assigning veto powers over legislation to people who identify as, as British or unionists. Now, I think people would find that much more difficult to get their heads around than a conversation about a flag. So it's it's a bit more complicated in that sense. Um, But I think those two things, the symbols stuff and the political institution stuff, they seem to be both less important than some of the other stuff that we've talked about, which is the effect of um, the health system type. And I know we've mentioned it, but for me, that's one of the, the most striking things about this project so far, the extent to which having a kind of socialized, free at the point of delivery, but hard to get an appointment, (laughs) um, NHS style system would sway um, Protestant people who don't like United Ireland towards it from the north. Um, And the extent to which, from a northern perspective, the southern health system would would, um, deter them is, is really, really quite striking and very strong.
1: Freya, I know you need to run off and do your actual day job. But before you go, maybe just a last thought on this and what John was saying there about what the most important points are going forward.
3: Yeah, I I have to run off, actually, and ask people um, about the results of the polling. So uh, (laughs) more to come. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I, I think... In in many ways we have raised more questions than, than than we've answered um in this debate which is some is some sometimes the the nature of this um I mean Pat's absolutely right when he says this is on the agenda, and it's it's on the agenda because of Brexit um to be perfectly honest and going back to that kind of point about losers' consent I mean it's interesting to remember that um Northern Ireland didn't vote for Brexit but of course the UK did um so Northern Ireland ended up with Brexit and everybody's everybody sort of had to get on with it and and on all the many consequences and. The, the, the destabilizing effect um, that that it's had. I mean I mean I think, you know, yeah, to come back come back to the point about the health service, I would be really interested to to see what that would do to um particularly Protestant opinion if somebody was able to come up with a way of saying, well actually we can give you the equivalent of the NHS, but you will be able to get an appointment, you will be able to get to get seen when you need to. And you could argue that, you know, that that the health system in the South is far from perfect either, so that you can argue that there's an opportunity there to do something different. I mean, I think to an extent, people, will take what they will out out of out of these figures um i mean just sort of looking around at the the republican and and the unionist um reaction up here um you know b- both sides have have taken sucker from the from these um but i suppose that the 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 point is about it, it, it's it's about it's about about the debate um it's about where this debate goes and 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 i, I think it, it it's it's about informing that debate and 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 the, the crux of this and I, i've said this many times before and i'm sure i've said it on this podcast but ultimately this question of a united ireland or not is going to it's going to come down to those don't knows it's going to come down to those alliance voters it's going to come down to those people who who don't have a position you know you're not going to secure united ireland or uh, save save the union um by you know, focusing on your TUV voter on the one hand, or your DUP voter, or your Sinn Féin voter. You know, it it it's those people. It's those people in, in the middle, and I don't think necessarily the parties on either side have fully grasped the fact that actually it's the people that, in the middle that they they need to talk to. Um. So yeah, interest to see where that goes.
1: Indeed, and thanks very much, Faria. A, a, a last thought from you, Pat. Um, is it all to play for, or are things actually settled for the foreseeable future? I know Brendan O'Reilly was was saying in her in our previous podcast that the very high number of don't-knows in our poll indicated that there was, you know, there was a lot of scope for fluidity and he pointed to previous examples like the, the, the shift in opinion and the run-up to to the Scottish referendum. But I look at it as, in a different way and say Northern Ireland was set up 100 years ago on the basis of a two-to-one majority for the Union and on the basis of our poll in terms of those who will declare a voting intention it's still a two to one majority for the union. That looks pretty unlikely to be changed by a referendum in five years or even 10.
0: I think the 10 year time scale looks quite ambitious for the proponents of, of unity, to be honest. It's it, it certainly the idea that it is an inevitability within 10 years, I think is one that isn't on the basis of these results and also of other results is not grounded in reality. At the same time, both north and south it seems to me are are societies that are in a considerable amount of political flux and the picture not just demographically but politically in in the north has changed more in the last few years than it did uh, in a long time uh, long time before that and you know the north is um, You know, the, the North is now, for the first time, a, a society of three minorities. You know, so it seems to me that political change in the North uh, is is inevitable in some shape or form, just as the process of political change in the South seems, with the possible uh, accession of Sinn Féin, to power for... Uh, you know, the first time in the history of of the state, these things are now on the agenda in a way that they just that they weren't before. So, political change, I think, will be a constant over the next couple of decades, both north and south. It's difficult to see constitutional change in the short term, but I think would be unwise to say that it can uh, that it can never happen. What clearly needs to happen before that is that the advocates of unity need to figure out what their plan is and then how to sell it, not just to the decisive middle ground that Freya uh, ident- correctly, uh, in my view, identifies there, but also to those people that we talked about earlier, to the people who would find it almost impossible to accept if there was a vote for uh, a united Ireland. So um, I, I, I think you know United Irelanders have their work cut out, maybe in the wake of of this series and and the picture of reality that it draws they have a better idea of the reality of that task that faces them uh, than uh, than they did before, and I suppose at the heart of it you know that's what we've been trying to do. It's what we try to do in our political coverage more broadly, but certainly in collaboration with John and Brendan and uh, and Aaron's, what we've been trying to do in this project is to paint uh, a picture of the world as it is, rather um, rather than as uh, people on either side might uh, might wish it to be.
1: And as John hinted earlier, there is yet more of it to come at the weekend. John, do you want to have a last word on it? There's one thing that did occur to me there listening to Pat, which is there's a there's another political process going on the changing Northern Ireland which Pat referenced the the others and the persuadables are also interested in political reform in Northern Ireland and the Alliance Party for example has proposals for uh, for reforming the the Belfast Agreement how do those two political tracks work in parallel with each other the internal reform in Northern Ireland and the push for unity
2: well I think what your question points to is a lot of uh, Northern Ireland quite a dynamic uh place in terms of politics and and public opinion, I think um I I think it relates to the point Brendan emphasized last week about that they don't know so 21 percent of Catholics for example, say that they 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 don't know, which looks um which which looks kind of high and it, it it's in the context of everything operating under the shadow of Brexit. And the um, kind of instability that's been caused by that with relation to the protocol and the non-existence of the, of the uh, non-functioning of the executive, which prompts other people to come along and say, Let, let's reform things. And so one crucial thing to keep your eye on in this issue is how politics develops with relation to Brexit in Northern Ireland and the implications of it and, we're, and in relation to whether or not we have a smoothly functioning executive and how that affects people. because. If Brexit doesn't get resolved and if the Assembly doesn't get up and running, you're essentially pushing the political situation into Northern Ireland to a choice between direct rule or a United Ireland, one could say. And The more that ends up like that, then these don't knows could fall down in terms of um, in favor, being in favour of a United Ireland if they're faced with that unpolitical choice. But if Brexit totally gets resolved and the Assembly gets up and running, then don't, don't knows within... Catholic um, end of things could be happy with the status quo. Not sure if that answers your question, but
1: no, it does. It begs a whole bunch of other questions, which we will definitely return to over the next uh, days, weeks, months, and Pat. God knows, maybe even years. <laughs> It'll just feel like <laughs> that. <for you. laughs> but we will leave it there for today. Thanks very much indeed to to John, to Pat, and to Freya for joining us. Uh, this podcast was produced by Declan Conlon. It's engineered by JJ Vernon, and we are going to be back very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye, and thanks very much indeed for listening.